TV. On Lectures in History, Middle Tennessee State University professor Ashley Riley Sousa teaches a class on Native Americans and capitalism in early 19th century California. She focuses on local tribes' commercial interactions with Spanish missions and fur traders. She also talks about the commodities these groups exchanged, such as livestock, fabric, fur, beads, and fish. Her class is about an hour and 15 minutes. All right, today's lecture uh, is going to pull together some of the topics that we've been exploring throughout the semester. The Spanish colonization of North America, the contributions of Native American societies to the development of the various North American colonies, Manifest Destiny and the American Conquest of Northern Mexico, and the American West's role in the sectional crisis over slavery, but we're going to examine them from a slightly different perspective. A few weeks ago, we read about uh, Indian removal, and we wrote about Indian removal in the 19th century, and how it shaped and was shaped by the expansion of American democracy, as well as the United States expanding cotton economy. And in your readings, Indian nations like the Cherokees, for example, were clearly victimized by the United States government in the state of Georgia, as well as land-hungry settlers. But the Cherokee nation's willingness to adapt its practices and institutions and to press all possible advantages in resisting removal illustrate how Indians throughout North America continued well beyond the colonial era to change in creative and dynamic ways to make colonialism work as much as possible in their favor. And with that in mind, I want to revisit California today, because when don't I want to revisit California, uh, and consider the ways that California Indian societies continued this practice beyond the mission era, which you're familiar with, um, and help to build California's economy, attract American settlers, and transform this remote territory into an economically vital American state during the gold rush. And as with every other region in North America, this transformation hinged on the work of Indian people. As you remember from the very beginning of the semester, Catholic missionaries were the vanguard of Spanish colonial settlement in California. Spanish Franciscan missionaries envisioned a northern frontier in California in which Indians would be converted into Spanish subjects, loyal to the crown, and willing to put their lives on the line to defend Spain's claim to North America. In their approach to the hunter-gatherer societies of California, this meant economic conversion as well as spiritual conversion. On one hand, doing the Lord's work meant getting Indians to do Spanish work, herding, farming, skilled trades, domestic service, and so on. On the other hand, the Lord's work required money, which was notoriously scarce in colonial California. But sometimes that money could be made in ways that aligned with the spiritual goals of the missions. Uh, the hide and tallow trade, for example, was the backbone of California's economy before the gold rush. And the Indian cowboys who tended the mission herds were the most important segment of California's workforce in the mission era. So Richard Henry Dana... Uh, was an American sailor aboard the Boston-based ship, the Pilgrim. Um, he observed that Mission Santa Clara and Mission San Jose on, Calif on California's San Francisco Bay um, did, in his words, quote, a greater business in hides than any in California. Large boats manned by Indians and capable of carrying nearly a thousand hides apiece are attached to the missions and sent down to the vessels with hides to bring away goods in return. Dana himself spent much of his two years in California from 1834 to 36, curing those hides and loading them aboard the ship. So he had a healthy appreciation for the economic significance of Indian labor at the missions, thousands of pounds of hides. I'll also note that Dana, um, in this wonderful portrait, bears more than a passing resemblance to 1980s heavy metal legend <laughs> Glenn Danzig. Um, separated at birth? Who knows? 
<laughs> Dana's ship was one of many contenders for California's hides and tallow. Uh, in 1833, the British fur trade company, the Hudson's Bay Company, began trading out of San Francisco Bay for hides, tallow, and wheat, all produced by Indians. These commodities were exchanged for British and American manufactured goods, especially calico cloth, which, as you remember from uh, our discussion of uh, the French colonies, um, cloth was always a major trade item. Uh, the Russian fur trade company, the Russian-American company, established a fort, Fort Ross, uh, on California's northern coast in 1812 for the specific purpose of producing wheat to ship to its main fur trade outpost at Sitka, Alaska. Um, they failed to produce enough wheat, and the Russian-American company then became a buyer of California mission wheat as well. American traders, though, were the most prevalent in California, especially from the Boston-based firm Bryant Sturgis & Company, which dominated trade between the Pacific coast of North America and China. The Pilgrim, the ship that Richard Henry Dana worked for, not Glenn Danzig, uh, was a Bryant Sturgis & Company ship. The hide and tallow trade was the most important official economic activity in California during the mission era, but unofficially, and away from the authority of the mission priests, the trade in stolen mission cattle, horses, and mules became another important source of trade in California's most important uh, commodity, livestock. Beginning in 1830, uh, New Mexican trading parties began visiting California to purchase mules, part of what was then called the Santa Fe, Tra the Santa Fe Trail. Um, historians usually associate the Santa Fe Trail um, with the, this connection between Missouri and then if you follow the dotted line down to Santa Fe and New Mexico. Um, but the Santa Fe Trail also extended on um, to a lesser extent into California, uh, ending in Los Angeles. They carried trade goods with them and ranged throughout the interior of California in search of the best and least expensive livestock. Much of that stock was obtained through trade with Indians. For example, in 1831, a New Mexican trading party arrived at Mission San Gabriel, just outside of Los Angeles, loaded down with wool and blankets, again, cloth being central to the trade. An American fur trapper traveling with these traders reported that the party returned to Santa Fe later that year with many mules, in his words, of very fine form. The cost of those mules, quote, brought in barter for blankets, caused quite a sensation in New Mexico. Now, these same mules, which, they, which were purchased with blankets, were then resold in Santa Fe at these trade fairs for between $6 and $10 a piece in cash. So you can see turning blankets into cash in these remote colonial um, economic outposts would have been immensely valuable. So not surprisingly, uh, the following year, 1832, um, Santa Fe traders returned to California and then came back, came back home to Santa Fe with about 600 mules and 100 horses. Um, so that was an uh, opportunity too good to pass up. Now, some of these animals were purchased through legitimate trade, um, meaning they were purchased from the actual owners of the animals. But much of the stock that New Mexican traders bought off of Indians was just stolen. Uh, in February of 1833, one priest reported that New Mexican traders had made off with 100, 108 mules that had been stolen by Indians from Mission San Miguel. A priest from Mission San Gabriel complained that year that, quote, the introduction of articles of commerce into this territory by natives of New Mexico has caused extensive robberies, both open and concealed. They sell, they trade, they induce Indians to steal animals to sell. And when Los Angeles authorities attempted to stop these thefts by requiring New Mexican traders to submit to inspections before departing California, the traders tried to elude the authorities. And they often succeeded. But when they were caught, the extent of their theft was pretty astounding. In one raid in January of 1833, California authorities confiscated more than 200 stolen animals. And another raid the next month resulted in the confiscation of 430 stolen animals. So 
pretty big herds of, of hot livestock. Um, in Northern California, the situation was no better. Uh, the trade in stolen livestock was so lucrative that that British fur trade company, the Hudson's Bay Company, got in on the action along with independent American fur trappers. So even legitimate corporations were involved um, in, in purchasing stolen livestock that they knew was stolen. Um, in April of 1833, the governor of California complained, quote, the British and Americans established on the Columbia River, referring in this case to the British Hudson's Bay Company, which was headquartered on the Columbia River, make frequent incursions into this country on the pretext of trapping beaver and other quadrupeds. You have to love the language of the 19th century. Scattering over various regions, they identify themselves with the wild natives, following the same kind of life. They live in a wandering fashion with them, and in this way become familiar and gain their confidence. From this has come rapidly one positive evil, namely that influenced by these adventurers, the natives have de dedicated themselves with the greatest determination to the stealing of horses from all the missions and towns of this territory. The natives in question, um, in the governor's statement, were uh, Indian people from the San Joaquin Valley of California, um, the speakers of a language called Yokuts. Um, they were, much like the Chumash that you remember from earlier in the semester, part of politically independent but culturally related uh, groups that each community saw themselves as being separate and distinct, but they all kind of spoke a common language. Um, and then also Plains Miwok speakers, again, from multiple independent villages, but all speaking the same language, um, from the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta region. Um, these were a mix of so-called wild Indians um, and Indians who had received baptism in the missions, right? So um, domesticated Indians or missionized Indians, um, as, as opposed to wild Indians who had never had um, the benefit of baptism in the missions. Drawing on... Uh, stock handling skills that they had learned in the missions, Indian livestock rustlers could, made off, could make off with large herds of mission stock and find shelter in Indian villages in the interior. This is an image of Mission San Gabriel um, down by Los Angeles, and it's a little bit washed out because of the lighting, but um, if you could see a little bit closer, um, you would notice that there are some uh, Indian men here in the photo, or sorry, in the painting rather, um, that, are, that are dressed pretty elegantly. Right, especially by contrast with uh, the women in the in the image, who are dressed um, in sort of like Spanish peasant garb. Um, the Indian men are cowboys, vaqueros in Spanish, um, and they are dressed. They look like a mariachi band. They're dressed really, really nicely, right? Um, and so that kind of shows you um, the value that missionaries placed on the work that these cowboys did. That they were allowed, um, first of all, to ride horses, which was generally forbidden to Indians within the California mission system, and secondly, to kind of dress pretty nice, right? They were not dressed in the in the, the garb of peasants, which is, of course, what the priests always hoped that California Indian converts would be. Um, a common technique used in livestock theft. Uh, was for raiders or, or thieves to uh, approach the mission in the middle of the night and open the gates of the horse corral, which, of course, they know where this is because they themselves once lived in the mission or they have friends and family that did, um, so they have kind of a good sense of the lay of the land. Then they would wait patiently, um, sometimes for hours, for the horses to sort of wander out of the corral slowly um, of their own will. And once the herd had left the corral um, and hopefully, ideally, wandered a good half mile or so away, uh, the rustlers would then mount up on their own horses and drive the animals at full gallop until dawn. Uh, then they would find a secluded spot to hide out and kind of rest the horses a little bit, and then once night fell again, continue the drive until they reached their destination, however many days it took. When horses tried to break from the herd, the rustlers brought them back into line using uh, a sort of ingenious native technique. 
they would fire, fire their arrows at the errant horses, um, but they would tie uh, two sticks around the arrowhead about an inch from the top, uh, or the tip, rather, um, so that when they fired the arrows into the horses, it would kind of just stick the horses a little bit, just enough to hurt, but not enough to actually do any damage to this valuable livestock. Um, one observer of this technique noted, quote, the horse immediately takes his place again in the band, and it is very seldom that the Indians are obliged to punish one unruly horse twice for that offense. Now, this is bad enough from the perspective of the missionaries, but to make matters worse, livestock rustling often went hand in hand with running away. Um, in June of 1819, a priest from Mission San Jose reported that the village of McQualamy on the McQualamy River in central California um, harbored some 60 stolen horses from Mission San Juan Batista, as well as, quote, numerous Christian fugitives who are their friends and neighbors. But this is a, a map that shows the location of the various missions. So you have um, San Gabriel, which is the one that we just saw the, the painting of down here by Los Angeles. Um, San Juan Batista is farther up uh, into northern California, close to San Francisco Bay. The priest asked the governor of California uh, for 12 soldiers that he could then send out into the field to attack the McQualamy village and retrieve both the horses and the fugitives that had run away from the mission. And the governor granted his request because livestock theft was a serious enough problem. Uh, and the priest reported back months later that the expedition had succeeded in rescuing 49 of the 60 horses, but in the priest's words, sadly, quote, not a soul was brought back to the mission. When one considers the skill and courage of these horse thieves, it's not surprising that the missionaries met with such limited success. And again, I'm sorry, I have to fast forward here. Um, I love this image. Um, this is uh, an image that was taken or um, recorded in 1856 um, by some surveyors who were involved in uh, surveying the Central Valley of California um, for a potential railroad track, like where it might be a good spot to build a railroad um, for the, what would ultimately become the, the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, and this one is titled Plain Between the San Joaquin and Kings Rivers. So this is the interior valley part of California. Um, and in 1856, um, one of the most notable things about the plain between the San Joaquin and the Kings River uh, was the presence of these mounted Indian stock rustlers. Um, and one of the reasons why I love this image so much is because it happens after the gold rush, right? Which indicates to me that even after California becomes a state, um, even after gold mining becomes its major reason for existence, we still see that Indian stock rustling um, is a large part of the Central Valley economy, right? That this trade persists. The other thing I really like about it is that um, there is, and probably not for you guys here in Tennessee, but um, in California anyway, there's a, a stereotype that California Indians were very docile, um, very easily defeated, very sort of peaceful and non-combative. Um, that California Indians ha don't have the same kind of um, public image as, say, like the mounted Lakota uh, warrior on horseback, right, with the feathered headdress and stuff. So they're kind of like not as badass, so to speak, um, in the popular imagination as, say, uh, Plains Indians. Um, so I love this image because that guy's pretty fierce, right? He doesn't quite have the full feather headdress, but he's got some feathers going on, right? Um, like, he looks like he could do some damage, um, either to your horse herds or to you if you try to get in his way. Um, so I like that, that even, you know, um, well into the gold rush years, uh, people still acknowledge that these mounted livestock rustlers in the Central Valley um, were kind of bad, you know, bad, bad. Um, stock rustling also offered Indians new opportunities to survive and thrive in the California interior. Uh, stock raiding led to a population explosion of wild horses in the Central Valley. 
Uh, an English visitor, William Garner, estimated to have seen 3,000 wild horses during two days of, tra two days of travel uh, in the valley in the 1840s. A miner uh, on the eve of the gold rush claimed that in the Central Valley, um, or that the Central Valley, in his words, quote, contains a larger portion of wild horses than any other part of the world to the same extent. On the western side of the San Joaquin River, they are to be seen in bands from 200 to 2,000. Right, so these enormous herds of, of wild horses. Um, these herds, um, in addition to providing a very lucrative source of trade, um, also provided a basis of subsistence for California Indians living in the interior. Um, they were an abundant food source. Right? You're probably not going to um, end up trading those wild horses, but you can still rely on them economically by eating them. Right? Um, one newspaper reported in 1847 that from the McQuallamy River in the north uh, to the source of the San Joaquin River in the south, um, Indians had become, in their words, so habituated to living on horse flesh that it is now with them the principal means of subsistence. Right? So all of a sudden, remember, acorns and salmon fishing had been the mainstay of the California Indian diet. And now, um, by the 1840s, um, we see that at least in the San Joaquin Valley, in the interior part of California, um, horse meat becomes a new staple. Livestock raiding also went hand in hand with the fur trade as um, the many, many complaints made by California authorities um, by, about the Hudson's Bay Company indicate. Um, the Hudson's Bay Company, that British fur trade company, and the Russian-American company, the Russian fur trade company, um, engaged in fur trade within California as well as other economic activities. Um, and it's not surprising that California missionaries upon seeing this economic activity, put uh, Mission Indians to work at this lucrative pursuit as well. I've let a river map here to kind of give you a sense of the extent of California's Central Valley here. Um, so this is the, the headwaters of the San Joaquin River, right, the southernmost extent of the horse eating. Um, and then the McQuallamy River is right here, so this is sort of the northernmost extent of the horse eating. And this sort of green... Um, central part of California is the great central valley of California, um, where this livestock trading, um, horse eating, and, uh, and ultimately fur trading is going to be taking place. The Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta region um, is, was uh, the finest trapping ground in California. California's beaver population has not quite recovered um, from, from this era. But the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta is sort of this um, triangle um, of land right there, kind of bracketed in um, by the San Joaquin, McQuallamy, and Sacramento rivers. Um, it abounded with beaver at the time, um, and uh, a type of otter that uh, we now call river otter, but back then was known as land otter, um, to distinguish it from sea otters, which were um, sadly like the primary uh, aim of the Russian-American and Hudson's Bay fur trade um, in, in California. Are you guys familiar with California sea otters? So California sea otters are kind of amazing. They have something like a million hairs per square inch. Um, so you can imagine uh, when you're imagining like, hey, what kind of fur could we get that we could really sell for a lot of money? The fur of an animal that has like a million hairs per square inch, that's going to be worth a lot, right? Mm -hmm. um, so going after beaver and land otter, as they were called, um, is not quite the, the hot economic activity that going after sea otters would be. But as the sea otter population began to plummet almost to the point of extinction uh, in the 19th century, these big fur trading firms began um, to turn their attention to sort of the not quite as 
awesome critters, right? The, the um, California beaver, which were not quite as great as sea otters, and the, the land otter. Um, the Plains Miwok pe- speaking people of uh, the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta, ironically, um, had no sort of native technologies uh, for fur trapping. Um, so you might have garnered from my many, many comments about California over the course of the semester. California's got really nice weather. Um, and in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta region, um, you're talking about a, a change in temperature um, from like winter to summer of like 40 degrees maybe, right? So you're like, oh, it's freezing and it's in the 50s in the winter. And then, oh, I'm broiling hot in the 90s in the summer. But in that narrow window, um, that narrow temperature variation, you don't have the need um, for a lot of clothes, right? So California Indians in in all seasons largely went pretty naked, right? Because you didn't have to bundle up. Um, So there's no need to hunt beaver. There's no need to like worry yourself about catching an animal that has tons of hairs per square inch because like you're just going to be naked, right? Because the weather's awesome in California. Um, Even better in Southern California where it never even gets into the 50s. Like you're you're talking about like the 60s minimum in, in the wintertime. Anyhow, um, see, when don't I want to talk about California? Um, so they have no native technologies really for dealing with fur-bearing animals. Um, sometimes they hunted beaver occasionally for food. Um, evidently, beaver tail is quite a delicacy, um, mainly in Canada. Um, but nothing for dressing furs, nothing for, for turning fur into clothing or anything. So when they trap, which they begin doing um, certainly by the 1820s, um, under the, the authority of the, the Spanish missions, um, they do so for the sole purpose of obtaining trade goods. It is their only reason for trapping, right? They wouldn't have done it otherwise. Um, the Spanish missionaries didn't really appreciate the New Mexican traders' efforts to induce Indians to steal livestock by providing trade goods, but they were not above paying trade goods to Indians themselves um, in order to get Indians to go out and trap for them. Right? So they're like, oh, these New Mexican traders, they're ripping us off. They're uh, scamming these Indians by paying them in beads and cloth to go out and do this, you know, steal livestock. And it's an outrage upon the Indians. But hey, pst, Indians, come on, here's some cloth, here's some beads. You want to go out and trap? Um, so they're, you know, sort of not really, not really um, walking the walk. Um, the Hudson's Bay Company as well got in on this action. Um, they sent yearly brigades into California between 1828 and 1843. Uh, the chief California brigade leader, Alexander McLeod, um, reported to uh, his boss in 1828, quote, Beaver has become an article of traffic on the coast, as at the mission of St. Uh, Joseph, meaning San Jose. Alone, upwards of 1,500 beaver skins were collected from the natives at trifling value and sold to ships at $3. So again, much like with livestock trade with those New Mexican traders, you have, we're going to pay the Indians in trinkets, and they're going to bring us back something that then we trade for cash, which, again, in the remote frontier area would have been um, a boon to any trader. He affirmed that the source of the skins was a party of Indian trappers in the Delta, uh, explaining, quote, our people, while trapping at the junction of the rivers within the influence of the ocean, meaning where the tide still has pull, met several Indians attached to the missions employed hunting beaver. The Indians collect a few skins each, which they barter at the mission for red and white beads and wearing apparel. By 1837, uh, a British sea captain, 
uh, sailed his ship up the Sacramento River, um, and he noted that the Indian trade in beaver skins, for which Mission San Jose had emerged as an early headquarters, had been so successful um, with a little bit of help from drought, which of course happens pretty regularly in California, to leave the Sacramento River and all of its tributaries nearly devoid of beaver and otter. Those that remained, he described as being of subpar quality, or in his words, refuse. Um, so literally all of the decent beaver and otter had been trapped out. Um, this captain encountered Mission Indians below the American River, um, on, the, on the Sacramento below the American River, um, with passes. Like literally the missionaries had like written them passes saying these Indians have our permission to be out here doing this trapping. Um, and they were given passes specifically allowing them to leave Mission San Jose and the influence of the Christian missionaries and Spanish civilization uh, to go and trade for furs with so-called wild Indians, right? Indians that had never been in the missions. Um, so think about, from the Spanish missionaries' perspective, like, yes, please go back and be with the wild Indians, right? Like, that's how valuable uh, fur trapping would have been. Um, these wild Indians, of course, are their neighbors, friends, family members, fellow tribes people, um, all the folks that they knew before they came into the missions, right? Like these, these are their crew. Um, and so when mission Indians, uh, you know, sort of left with these passes, they went home um, to engage in this trade throughout the 18-teens, 1820s, and 1830s. Uh, trappers from Plains Miwok-speaking communities in the Sacramento and San Joaquin Delta were incredibly good at their work, uh, and they were very protective of their trapping grounds. One American trapper, um, and you guys might recognize this name because sort of in the, in the lore about American mountain men, he's kind of the king of them all, Jedediah Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, we know, we know Jedediah Smith. Not to be confused with Jebediah Springfield, the founder of Springfield from The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Different guy altogether. Um, so he was struck when he visited Central California by the hostile reception that his trapping party received from uh, Indians along the McQualamy and Cosomnes River uh, in 1828. So this suggests to me that these Indian people um, immediately identified Jedediah Smith's party as an economic threat um, and understood the economic competition that their presence would have presented to the Indian trapping efforts. Uh, Smith himself interpreted the Indians' reluctance to meet him or accept his gifts as evidence of their fear of strangers, like, oh, the Indians were so simple they didn't understand that the white men didn't mean to hurt them. Um, But along the Consumnus River, um, the Indians were not so timid and scared of the white men that they were willing to sit by and let Jedediah Smith's party trap their river without a fight. Um, outright violence broke out between the Indians along the Cosomnes River and Jedediah Smith's party as soon as his party attempted to set their traps in the river. The next morning when they returned to their traps to try to see, hey, did we catch any beaver? Um, they realized that all their traps had been taken by the Indians. Um, and he reported... Quote, a good many had been taken by the Indians who showed themselves on the opposite side of the river, like, you know, what are you going to do about it, right? Um, so what could have been for the, peop- the Indian people um, along the Consumnes River an unfortunate episode of poaching, right? Because, like, these are our beavers, this is our river. You can't come along and poach our stuff. Um, actually turned into uh, a, a pretty good economic opportunity, right? They stole the traps and all of the beaver that might have been in them um, and frightened off their competition, right? So that's just good business. Right, in a little bit of like a, a, a mob kind of way, but you know, good business, right? Little little threats, scare off the competition, um, and and of course, making off with expensive metal traps, which, um, as we know, the native people of North America did not work iron or steel themselves. Um, so making off with those iron traps would have been, uh, or steel traps rather, would have been a huge economic advantage. 
Um, the following year, Alexander McLeod, the, the chief uh, brigade leader of the California Hudson's Bay Ca- uh, Company California Brigade, noted that along the McQuallamy River, Indians stole traps and horses from his party. So again, traps, but also horses, right? They're like, we can get him on both ends, right? Um, we'll steal their traps and sell their horses. Um, and he reported that uh, deserters from Jedediah Smith's party from the year before uh, tried to stick... Uh, stick around in the Central Valley and stay behind and do more trapping after their disastrous encounter with uh, the Indians on the Cosumnes River um, and ended up actually getting killed by Indians, right? Like the Indians were like, you absolutely will not poach in our territory. Um, these are not timid people who don't understand the motivations of, of these fur traders. Um, Hudson's Bay Company's Southern Brigade leader, John Work, uh, noted in the spring of 1833 that Indians along the McQuallamy River and these guys apparently were like the guys to be afraid of. The McQuallamy River Indians were like not messing around uh, at all. Um, he noted that those Indians, quote, seem to steal the traps principally for the sake of the beaver that is in them. So like he has this aha moment where he's like, they seem to be stealing the beaver because the beaver are valuable. Go figure. Um, so this vigorous defense of trapping grounds by Plains Miwok speaking people reflects the economic importance of Indian trapping, um, which is especially notable given that Neither the Cosumnes River Indians or the McQuallamy River Indians entered into the mission system until 1834, right? So all of this livestock rustling and, and running off the competition and trying to get the traps and, and the beavers for themselves is happening before they have any formal affiliation with the missions, right? Um, so they don't even need to be directed by the missionaries to do these things, right? As soon as they imagine that there's an economic opportunity to be had, they're seizing it um, and, and performing it independently, um, so they were probably among the wild, Indi- the wild Indians um, that Mission Indians were sent out to trade with. Um, when white settlers began arriving in the Central Valley uh, in the 1830s, they became yet another market for Indian furs. Um, probably the most famous 19th century Californian, John Sutter. I have to have mentioned John Sutter before. Yeah. John Sutter, okay. Um, John Sutter, who... Uh, was the proprietor of uh, a colony known as New Helvetia, um, often offered trade goods to Indian trappers in exchange for beaver, otter, and other types of fur-bearing animal skins. Um, I have a wonderful portrait of John Sutter here, probably his best portrait, his most flattering portrait. Um, we need to bring back the, what is that called? That fashion? An ascot. We need to bring back the ascot. It's a good look. Um, He put himself in direct competition with the Hudson's Bay Company, with Mission San Jose, um, and with a growing number of other settlers in the Central Valley as a buyer of Indian furs. So by the fall of 1841, only two years after he founded his colony, Sutter claimed, and he was kind of a notorious liar, so I'm going to say claimed, claimed, uh, to be selling some 3,000 beaver pelts per year. Um, Even if it's only half of that, um, his, his trapping crew was like some 20 guys, right? So to imagine, and then the trapping season is like the fall and early winter. Um, so to imagine 20 guys doing that kind of damage um, over a pretty limited uh, number of months in the year, he was doing a pretty brisk business. Um, Indian trappers, for their part, um, incorporated Sutter into their own fur trade marketplace. They did not need to be told by Sutter, like, hey, go out and do this. They were like, oh, hey, we got another buyer. Like, here's one more guy. Um, that we can potentially sell these things to. Um, and so along with the Hudson's Bay Company and Mission San Jose, Sutter became one buyer among many potential buyers, and they shopped their furs around to find the best prices um, on the most desirable trade goods. Um, 
cloth, and in the, in the case of California Indians, beads, which functioned as cash, like a currency, um, in the California Indian economy. Uh, one Plains Miwok-speaking village, uh, Ochahamne, which was situated on the Sacramento River uh, in the northern part of the Delta, became a headquarters of the Indian fur trade, where Indian middlemen took furs from trappers, some of them technically Sutter's employees, um, and marketed them to whomever could provide the best return um, on their go- uh, in trade goods. Right? So these guys are like, yeah, okay, we work for you, we'll take your pay, and then we'll sell our furs to somebody else who's going to pay us better. So you get paid on both ends. Um, Sutter's colony, New Helvetia, is a, a great case study of how Indians in California made best use of the economic possibilities afforded by colonialism. Um, fur trappers were but one segment of New Helvetia's Indian workforce, um, and Plains Miwok-speaking and Valley Nissanen-speaking people worked at New Helvetia at all kinds of tasks, ranging from fur trapping and livestock tending um, to weaving cloth, harvesting wheat, you name it, um, and an Indian was doing it. Um, the buildings that you see here were built of a particular type of, of brick called adobe, um, which was very common in California, pretty common throughout um, northern Mexico, what we would now call the Southwest, um, all built by Indians, right? So the entire place um, was sort of a, um, a, a monument to um, the willingness of Indians to engage in this economic activity. Um, now, I don't want to overstate my case. There were some Indians... Uh, affiliated with New Helvetia, just as there were some in the mission system, um, who were less willing, um, who many observers uh, described as being enslaved. Um, Were they actual property, or were they just being worked as if they were slaves? It's not clear, Um, but certainly not not all Indians affiliated with uh, New Helvetia or any aspect of the colonial California economy uh, were doing this completely voluntarily. Um, but what really strikes me is how many were. Um, and especially among cowboys and trappers, um, this was prestige work, um, and it tended to be something that didn't require a lot of force uh, or a lot of coercion to get Indian men to participate in. Um, the most important trade goods uh, in trading with Indians at New Helvetia uh, were the same as almost everywhere else in California. Um, cloth, beads, um, especially woolen manta cloth um, and cotton calico, um, but also knives, axes, uh, fish hooks, blankets, needles, thread, flour. Um, but again, you know, we talked about the idea of some commodities having elastic demand and other commodities having inelastic demand, right? So there's a limited number of axes that you're going to need, um, but everybody wants more clothes, right? And in the case of California Indians, you're always going to want more beads because everybody wants more cash, um, these were always the price that Indians demanded for their participation in, in this economy. Um, while these goods kind of seemed like, in some ways, because they're metal um, or, or manufactured cloth, um, or in the case of the beads, glass instead of seashell or bone, um, they seemed like a novel innovation in Indian life in the California interior. Um, but Indians used them in ways that were completely culturally relevant and familiar, right? So they didn't have to reinvent the wheel with axes and fish hooks. Take the example of manufactured cloth. Um, Indian trappers took uh, manufactured cloth in payment uh, for all kinds of services, and they took abundant amounts of it on credit from Sutter, meaning, like, I'll take the cloth from you now, but I will gladly do the work for you next Tuesday, right? Um, The cloth represented uh, for 
California Indians many hours of labor saved um, for the Indian craftspeople who would otherwise have had to produce it by hand, by splitting tree bark or grass stalks into fine fibers, um, spinning those fibers into thread, and then laboriously hand-weaving that thread um, into, into finished fabric. Um, when you think about that, then you're like, okay, now it makes sense why people didn't wear too many clothes. Like if the weather could afford you the opportunity to not have to do that so much, um, you would take that opportunity. Um, other clothing was traditionally produced by weaving feathers into cloaks, um, some of which were pretty spectacular. Um, the Plains Miwok and Valley Nissen and speaking people living closest to New Helvetia, like most hunter-gatherer societies in the world, relied pretty overwhelmingly on gathered vegetable resources. And, and women were the primary gatherers um, in these societies, so bore the primary responsibility for sustaining and provisioning their communities. Right? Um, so think about the convenience that would have been represented by not having to make your own fabric, not having to weave your own blankets out of feathers, right? not having to pluck all those birds. Um, so manufactured cloth is an important time saver. Um, it's a convenience product that would have had a, an immediate and noticeable positive effect on a person's daily or weekly schedule. Uh, among one valley Nissen and village, Sukumne, on the American River, uh, wild duck feathers were an important source of clothing and blankets. And one visitor to New Helvetia, this guy William Dane Phelps, observed the women of Sakumne weaving wild duck feather blanket. And he described it this way, quote, the labor of making one of these blankets is immense. Captain Sutter presented me with one, which he assumed occupied six females, four months in the making, right? So if you could get a machine made like length of calico cloth, you're saving a lot of time. <laughs> um, I'm going to say wool probably instead of instead of calico in this case, right? Like I'm going to say that wool is probably like the warmer option. Um, but whatever it may be, like you are saving yourself a tremendous amount of time. Think of the hours freed up in these women's schedules um, for doing other economic activity, um, or I don't know, sleeping or doing anything. Good lord. Um, Plains Miwok speaking men also participated in cloth manufacturing. Um, weaving feathers and rabbit skins into cloaks and blankets, um, which clothed villagers of both sexes during ceremonies, uh, during cold weather, you know, cold weather uh, in California. Um, so in Plains Miwok-speaking communities, access to manufactured cloth enabled men to enjoy enhanced status and prestige, or in, and in Valley Nissanen-speaking societies, women to enjoy enhanced status and prestige that derives from the very real economic responsibility of clothing your family and clothing your community members um, while reaffirming, like, this is, this is what makes me a man or this is what makes me a woman, right? Um, gender division of labor is very important in California Indian societies as it is almost anywhere else in the world. Um, and so the idea that you are fulfilling your duty as a man or fulfilling your duty as a woman was very intimately tied into these economic activities. Um, so you can see that not only is there a, a real economic benefit to it, uh, there's also a, a reaffirmation of your culture inherent in it. Um, and then, of course, it makes you more economically important within your community, right? So imagine being the guy that got paid in beads, so beads are, are valuable because they're currency. Um, they, they operate as cash um, in transactions between different California Indian societies. Um, and also, it is necessary to have a few beads, uh, and by a few, I mean a lot, of beads in order to pay, pay the bride price for marriage. Right? So you guys are familiar with ideas like dowry and bride price, right? that um, you are taking 
your future wife out of her parents' household, and there's going to be now um, less work happening in her parents' household. So you have to sort of not pay for her, but you have to sort of reimburse her parents for losing the value of her labor, right? We talked about this, right? The only reason to have children is to, is to get free labor. I still haven't worked that out. Um, mine still won't work unless they're threatened. But in theory, the reason to have children uh, is for the free labor. Um, so you've got to have some beads on hand because, like, if I'm losing my daughter's economic productivity, I'm not losing much. But in theory, if I'm losing my daughter's economic productivity, um, you know, I'm going to want something really good for it. And the best thing that you can get is cash. Everybody wants to get paid in cash. Um, Central Valley Indian people, California Indian people in general, um, favored a certain type of bead that was made from a clamshell that could only be obtained along the northern California coast north of San Francisco. Um, and so these, these sort of disc-shaped clamshell beads were um, white beads became... Um, the fundamental unit of currency in California Indian economy. Um, and then, beginning in the mission era and extending well into um, the gold rush era, uh, European and American traders introduced manufactured glass beads imported from Europe. And so you go from, like, I have one color, it's white, it's made from a clamshell, I can only get it if I trade really well with these Indians north of San Francisco. And then all of a sudden, like, every white person that you come across is like, I'll pay you in beads, I'll pay you in beads, um, which cost nothing. Um, to the white folks who are bringing the beads into the, into the transaction, but who, for Indians, it would be like somebody just being like, I'll pay you in bags of, of $100 bills, right? I'm just going to pay you in cash, which in California, in this remote frontier area, is like money falling from heaven, right? Um, they were introduced initially in California by the Hudson's Bay Company, um, who conducted trade off of ships in San Francisco Bay. Um, and these, these beads become um, ubiquitous in California Indian communities, especially... Um, especially in the Delta region, um, among Plains Miwok-speaking communities, long before they ever did any business with John Sutter or New Helvetia. Um, so long before they literally lived alongside white people, they were reaching out and seeking opportunities to get paid in these beads. Um, Red and white beads were the colors most often demanded um, by Indian consumers. White functioned as currency, uh, and red seems most likely to have been used as a ceremonial adornment during dances and other religious ceremonies. Um, and the ability to earn beads through work at a place like New Helvetia, especially of an exotic material like glass, would have been a tremendous economic asset, right? Because unlike other Indians that you might trade with, which are going to they're going to part with the beads grudgingly, right? Because imagine if you had to, like, go out and get the clamshell and turn it into a bead, right? Those beads are, like, laden with value um, that, that reflects the effort that went into making them. But here you have these jerks who show up, and they're like, beads, beads for everyone, right? And you're like, fools, I'll take them, right? Um, so, you know, they could start doing things like demanding, like, we'll only have the red ones. Um, because whites literally did not understand the value of the beads that they were trading for. Whites imagined that they were giving trinkets in exchange for valuable things like beaver pelts, um, whereas Indians were like, we're giving away something that we don't need in exchange for money from heaven, right? Um, access to a new source of cash in the form of beads would make anybody a rock star in their home community. Um, so it elevates the status of Indian men um, as potential marriage partners to have the economic connections that would allow them to access these beads. Um, not just for the value of the beads in hand, which is awesome enough, but for the 
potential future beads that their economic connections could provide, right? I have beads now, but I engage in this work, and I could have beads in the future as well, right? You're going to be a good provider. You're going to be a good son-in-law. Um, you're going to be a rock star. Um, so glass beads symbolize wealth in hand, but also a man's connections to economic opportunity um, linked to market forces way beyond California. Now, this is especially critical for Indian communities um, from the 1830s forward, because in 1833, uh, a malaria epidemic swept through central California. Um, you have this impression of California as being very dry because of the recent drought, and I'm not going to lie, it can be very dry. Um, but prior to, um, prior to the damming of the rivers in California and prior to the introduction of livestock, particularly cattle, into California, um, California actually kind of had more of a problem being too wet than too dry, not because it had a lot of precipitation, but because the groundwater, the water table was so high that um, in a low-lying area like the Central Valley, um, the groundwater was just so close to the surface that any little amount of rain could turn like the whole valley into a swamp. Um, and so malaria was endemic in California um, beginning in 1833, um, well into the 20th century. It wasn't really until the 1920s that the Central Valley became a place where people could live um, without being endangered by malaria. So malaria sweeps through the Central Valley in 1833. And um, by some estimates, and these are not necessarily the most reliable estimates, but by some estimates, uh, kills some 75% of the Indian population of the Central Valley in 1833. So imagine then that you live in a society in which um, now there just are 75%, maybe, fewer marriage partners, right? How much harder are you going to have to compete, um, right, for a limited pool of marriage partners? Um, when white settlers begin moving into the Central Valley, uh, really in large numbers in the 1840s, um, then Indian men face uh, kind of a, an extra burden in trying to find marriage partners because suddenly white settlers are very attractive marriage partners for Indian women um, for a couple of reasons. Um, affluent men are always going to have the advantage in a society in which a marriage partner is chosen in part based on his ability to provide. Right? So these white settlers who are the source of the beads um, are way preferable to the Indian guy who might just be able to earn the beads. Right? Um, so Indian women find um, settler men to be very, very attractive marriage partners. Um, I also have a theory, and this, one, this one's not necessarily borne out by anthropology, but my theory is that California Indian societies are generally um, patrilocal, meaning when a couple gets married, they generally go and live with the husband's family. So imagine that you're a woman, and you're like, yay, I get to get married to this guy and then live with my mother-in-law until the end of time. Um, and then you'd be like, but here are all these white guys who just showed up in California, and they don't have mothers. <laughs> That's my theory. But I also told you that I live with my mother-in-law, so love you, Laura. Um, so marriage is important, we know, like both in, in the love scheme of things, um, but also as, a, as an economic situation, right? Like you don't want to be saddled with a ne'er-do-well. Like you want to have a man that's a good provider. Um, you also want to have a good a woman that's a good provider too, because remember that women are doing most of the economic work in any given Indian community. Um, so women can really call the shots here. Um, and Indian women can have their pick, um, whether it be of white settlers or Indian men. Um, Affluent, powerful men have the advantage in this marriage market, and this is especially evident in the visibility of mixed relationships at places like New Helvetia, where immigrant men, settler men, took Indian wives. Um, in addition to 
the challenges that were posed by Indian white intermarriage sort of stealing away all the potential wives, um, the malaria epidemic of the early 1830s and unrelated, the introduction of venereal and other diseases um, into the Indian population through the mission system um, heightened the competition uh, for men, uh, among men for marriage partners um, in, in the wake of this sort of devastating demographic collapse. Add to that uh, the traditional practice of polygyny, um, which, in which uh, powerful, wealthy Indian men would take multiple wives. Um, and then you can see like people are going to be like at each other's throats trying to get a wife, right? Um, the need for Indian men to distinguish themselves on the economic playing field um, is more urgent than ever. So trade becomes an important survival strategy just in the literal sense of like, is your community going to survive? Are more children going to be born into your community? Um, is your community going to go on? Census figures bear this out. So for example, uh, in 1846, uh, informal census of the Indian population in the Central Valley showed that Indian communities most closely associated with the new Helvetia colony, right, that source of beads and cloth and other economic advantages, had, in the words of the census taker, quote, an extraordinary abundance of women, suggesting that women chose to marry into communities that were well off um, or marry into communities that, through their associations with new Helvetia, had better access um, to economic opportunity. The continuing survival of Indian communities beyond the mission era was in no small part due to Indians' skillful engagement with larger markets as workers um, in a growing and changing profit-driven economic system. Possibly the best example of this is the Indian village of Wallacomne on the Sacramento River. Um, a large proportion of the people of Wallacomne had briefly entered into Mission San Jose in 1834. Mission San Jose like, closes its doors in 1836, so they're there for a minute right, like a minute. Um, so they're briefly there. Um, and the village remained, I think because of this, um, continually inhabited. So like some Indians went into, the, into Mission San Jose, but Mission San Jose wasn't around long enough to really bring everybody into its orbit, right? So unlike many other Indian villages um, in this region, um, not all the Indians were brought into the mission, right? Um, and there were enough Indians left behind to still function as a community, um, unlike in many other cases where a community would break up, like there would just be like 10 people left, and you can't really keep a whole community. That's not even a, a tribal council, right? Um, so people would like sort of break off and join their relatives in other communities, right? But Wallacomne stayed a community um, throughout the mission era. Um, when Mission San Jose shut its doors in 1836, and people of Wallacomne sort of filtered back into the interior of California, they found their village still there, right? So this is a big deal. Um, their chief... Uh, a man by the name of Anache, he didn't even take on a Spanish name. Um, and you'll remember from reading your article about the Spanish missions in California, all these guys, uh, all these Indian people um, who were baptized at the missions all were given Spanish names. So the fact that the historic record shows that Anache is still going by Anache into the 1840s shows you that Wallacomne still had a very, very functioning community in a political system that still functioned during the mission era. Um, so either he didn't go into the mission or Christianity left no impression on this man whatsoever. But either way, Wallacomne is still holding down the fort. Um, this indicates a couple of things about Wallacomne's history that I think are important. Um, first of all, they don't engage with the colonial economy. They don't engage with New Helvetia out of desperation, right? This is still a place that still has a chief, right? Um, they're not being forced into this economic situation. Um, their village, their political structure are still intact um, when New Helvetia is established in 1839. 
And so when they engage with Sutter, when they go to work um, to trade with New Helvetia, um, they do so as free agents, right? Um, They position themselves not as employees, not as servants uh, to Sutter, um, not as lackeys of New Helvetia, but as economic partners. Um, and, and for his part, John Sutter acknowledged this. Um, they reoriented their village economy uh, toward producing pickled salmon, of all things, um, for export to Hawaii mainly. Um, I have a great image here of Indian salmon fishing here. Again, a little bit washed out. Um, but you can see um, this is on the Sacramento River in 1854. Um, and you can see Indians here on the banks of the river. And they have stretched across the river um, sort of like a large net um, to catch salmon that, you know, would be, would be spawning upstream. Um, and not so much anymore because of the damming of the rivers and, um, and agriculture. Um, but back in the day, like, California used to have um, an amazing abundance of salmon. Um, sometimes, like, you hear uh, people, um, records... Uh, of people who visited the Pacific Northwest in uh, the 19th century who talked about, you know, you could walk across the river on the backs of salmon. That's how the Sacramento River in California would have been. So you can imagine what these guys are netting, all right, in that, in that net. Um, using these, these man, like, native manufactured nets and fishing weirs, right, like we talked about you're going to split the fibers from the bark and then you're going to spin it. So they manufacture these nets themselves. Um, they take in these huge catches of salmon, and with a little bit of instruction from Sutter, who, like, I'm going to be honest, was no expert in pickling salmon, um, but mostly through their own trial and error, um, which Sutter lovingly recorded all their mishaps in attempting to pickle salmon, um, they mastered the techniques of preserving salmon in these barrels um, for export. One visitor to New Helvetia in 1841 observed the following, quote, The Sacramento and its branches yield enormous salmon of superior type that come in from the sea to spawn. The natives erect barricades across the small streams and kill the fish as they come up with stones or pointed spears. These salmon can also be caught with hooks or by means of staunch nets stretched across the river. The fish, after being salted, is consumed to a large extent in the Sandwich Islands, where it is exported in large quantities by the Columbia River Company, Hudson's Bay Company. Ships also come out from New York expressly to load on salmon. Right? Anybody here been to Hawaii? Um, so there's, there's like a... a famous uh, Hawaiian dish. It's like a, like a noted Hawaiian delicacy, uh, lami lami salmon. Um, salmon is not native to Hawaii, so you're like, how on earth do, do the Hawaiians come up with like, salmon as their, like, one of their signature, um, signature dishes? It, it's because of this trade in, in preserved salmon um, from California and the Pacific Northwest. Um, evidently, it's like a, a salmon salad that's mixed with, um, with ice. I never tried it when I was in Hawaii, the one time. Um, <laughs> This becomes the village of Hualakamne's principal economic activity, um, so much so that the entire village picks up and relocates 10 miles further upriver to be closer to New Helvetia um, and the supply of barrels and salt that was necessary for preserving their catch. Um, the fishermen of Hualakamne, when they were done preserving the salmon in barrels, and it was a whole process, like you had to like drain off the water that came out of the salmon. Uh, you had to drain off the salmon fluid. <laughs> From the barrel, it was a whole process. Um, so once that was done, they would load um, they would load their barrels onto uh, Sutter's boats, and then these boats, which were manned by crews of Indian sailors, um, would ferry the goods to San Francisco or San Jose for export. 
this commerce was so important and Wallachomne's position economically so strong that Sutter established his Embarcadero, as he called it, which was basically like a, a small port, um, at Wallachomne. Um, so all of New Helvetia's critical exports, whether it be furs, hides, tallow, salmon, whatever it may be, wheat, um, came and went through the Indian village of Wallachomne. Um, Wallachomne persisted, right, in a way that other villages didn't necessarily persist, albeit in a somewhat different location. Um, throughout the mission era, well into um, the era that New, New Helvetia um, thrived, um, right on through the gold rush, um, into the early years of the gold rush, um, as not a dependent, but as an economic partner of New Helvetia. Speaking of the gold rush, um, now you guys, um, your main exposure to the gold rush up to this point has been um, its importance to the sectional crisis over slavery in California entering the Union um, as a free state in the Compromise of 1850. but the gold rush, just in terms of California's own history, is a major turning point. Um, we go from this backwater colonial economy that depended on things like fur trapping um, to um, this you know, incredibly populous, wealthy state in which literally cash is coming up out of the ground, right? Um, so, like, again, money falling from heaven or coming out of the rivers, I guess, as it were. Um, so... A lot of historians have suggested that this is the end. This is the end of when Indians are economically important to California, right? The gold rush changes everything, and Indians go from being um, a vital part of California's economy to a nuisance to ultimately be exterminated. Um, One of my uh, colleagues, uh, Benjamin Madley, has recently uh, published a book called uh, An American Genocide about um, what he defines as a genocide against California Indians that begins um, really in full effect during the gold rush and persists well um, to... the, almost the end of the 19th century. Um, so the gold rush is usually seen as this big turning point, it's like the beginning of the end for California Indians. Um, but historians are beginning to realize that the gold rush, at least initially, doesn't really materially change economic, Indian economic participation in the California economy. Indians jumped right into gold mining um, by the tens of thousands in the first year of the gold rush. So gold is discovered in January of 1848. Um, The gold discovery is announced in the United States in December of 1848. The gold rush begins in the spring of 1849. Between December of 1848 and the spring of 1849, tens of thousands of Indian gold miners are in the gold mining regions, what we call the mother load uh, in California, in the Sierra Nevada foothills, um, panning out gold, panning out uh, millions and millions of dollars of gold um, from the California mines. Sutter at New Helvetia, for example, um, found this to be a huge problem, that Indians were so keen to get into the mines in 1848 that he recalled, quote, in his broken English because he was German, quote, the Indians could not be kept longer at work. They was impatient to run to the mines, and other Indians had informed them of the gold and its value. And so I had to leave more as two-thirds of my harvest in the fields, right? So now, like, your beads aren't going to do it anymore, right? I don't care how much calico cloth you give me, Right? Um, this isn't just cash for us, it's cash for everybody, and we're going to go and get it. Um, they quickly learned the value of gold, just as they had quickly learned the value of anything else um, that was a commodity um, being exchanged in California. Livestock, furs, salmon, um, whatever it is that, that settlers wanted, um, Indians were very quick to ascertain the economic opportunity um, in that commodity. 
they just as quickly position themselves to take advantage of it by fleeing places like New Helvetia, um, by leaving their customary jobs um, for the mines. And so the, the first gold rush in California was truly an Indian gold rush. Um, I'll also add to this kind of a other unknown story or lesser known story of the California gold rush, um, where we imagine like the, the grizzled American miner with like the long beard and the, the hat, right, with his pick and shovel. So the, the initial miners, um, other than Indians, in the early years of the California gold rush were um, Native Hawaiians um, who there was a brisk trade, right, in salmon between California and Hawaii. Native, Native Hawaiian sailors on these ships would abandon ship in San Francisco and head straight for the gold fields. Um, and Mexican miners coming up from the state of Sonora um, over among the first to hear word of the California gold rush. And Chilean miners um, who were also um, usually would abandon ship as sailors, you know, um, coming to the port at San Francisco would abandon ship uh, and go into the gold fields. So um, California Indians were just at the, the vanguard of this. Um, but the initial like sort of year or so of the gold rush was a um, highly international um, and not very American event, oddly enough, even though we always associate the, the gold rush. It's like, you know, this is like as soon as the United States takes over California, we have this gold rush. And then like all of a sudden there are all these Americans there. Um, one historian in considering the significance of California Indian labor um, has concluded the following, quote, surprising to many might be the fact that for about a century, a few thousand Indians managed by small numbers of Spaniards, Mexicans, Europeans, and Americans launched and sustained an economic revolution. This revolution made California's capitalist and industrial development possible. I would go even a step further uh, than this historian and suggest that it was many more thousands of Indians uh, than the few thousand that this historian suggests. Um, and in some of the cases I've highlighted in this lecture, they certainly did not need the management of whites um, to get involved in these economic activities. Um, only the suggestion of economic opportunity. So this turns, in some ways, the standard narrative of California Indians on its head. Right? I kind of mentioned when I showed you the, the image of the um, mounted uh, Indian livestock uh, trader on horseback, you know, that, that sort of image of California Indians as being docile, as being sort of um, almost steamrolled um, by white settlers, by the mission system, right? Um, I feel like this turns that narrative uh, about California Indians on its head. California's Indian population, especially those touched by the missions, um, were not passive victims of colonialism um, and, and sort of passive uh, recipients of economic transformations in California. I'm not going to try to deny that missionization and, and conquest and warfare, the introduction of disease, weren't disruptive and sometimes outright devastating. I mean, entire Indian villages perished um, under these forces. But Indian people made intelligent, informed, and culturally sensible choices about their futures based on the new opportunities presented to them, even under very dire circumstances, uh, within the limits placed on them by these circumstances. Indians used these economic changes, and sometimes initiated these economic changes, to sustain themselves and their communities and to preserve their independence um, during a time when that was increasingly harder to do every year. Questions? Thoughts or feelings? Yes, ma'am. Really give, it, give it a second. We got the mic coming on over. Yes, sure. Who has a question? Right here. It's just interesting to hear you talk so much about their willingness and their ability to participate in different economic adventures and whatever you might want to call it. 
where we've been taught most of the time that they just kind of got steamrolled into extinction pretty much. So how is it, I don't know, that was it really just violence or land hungriness on the part of white settlers moving in that kind of took them out when they seemed to have such an economic mind and ability to adapt to different situations that really kind of took them out of their homeland across the entire United States? Um, so I, I'm, I'll speak to the California situation, um, particularly at first. So in California, yeah, it's literally violence. It, it's, it's literally when ranchers, farmers, and gold miners are like, we don't want Indians participating in this economy at all anymore, um, that we really see the tide turn permanently for California's Indian population. Um, gold, white gold miners do not appreciate the competition um, that Indians present. Um, th there's sort of this interesting um, racial epithet that uh, American gold miners use to describe Indians. Um, they call the uh, Indians of California diggers, right? Like, oh, they just, they just dig with sticks for roots. You know, like they're, they're diggers. They don't do real economic activity. Here, let me go dig some gold out, right? So you can imagine, like, this sense of, like, um, for whites that, like, these people are inferior and they're mining gold, and moving from place to place, gathering and, and digging. And um, we're kind of doing the same thing. And this is awkward and we don't like this competition, right? Um, and then of course, you know, livestock rustling doesn't stop. Um, so as more and more farmers and, and um, ranchers become established in central California, then that becomes a huge problem. And um, unlike the Spanish and the Mexicans who imagine Indians to be a vital economic part of, of their society, um, Americans in California are like, no, um, th these folks are not people who we see as being a permanent part of our future here. They're much more willing to resort to um, just wholesale murder to deter livestock theft. Right. right? Um, now, elsewhere um, in, in North America, I think especially in places where the fur trade was an important part of, of the Indian economy, um, I think of like Louisiana, like we read about earlier in the semester, um, you know, throughout the, the former New France, um, when that trade goes away, then yes, the significance of, of Indians to the overall survival of the region or the overall economic pro prosperity of the region goes away. Um, and then, especially when Americans move in, it's like, yeah, these people aren't part of our future. They're not economically ne necessary to us, um, but their land is. Um, and so then the land hunger becomes a real issue. Yeah, good question. I mean, good question. Comment? Yeah. Any others? So she totally gets an A. Anybody else? <laughs> All right, well, oh, great, Shannon, go ahead. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you said that whenever they did the fur trade or when they would sell the fur, they would get like $3 for it. How much do you think it would be like now, like transferred into our time period? Oh my gosh, I was trying to do this actually um, earlier today when I talked about um, the the mules and horses being sold in Santa Fe for $10. I was like, okay, I need to translate. What's like $10 in 1833 money? in terms of like 2017 money. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't like dig up any accurate, anything that looked remotely accurate. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, suffice to say like a lot more money, right? Um, now when folks are talking about like, I'm trying to remember, it was like Jedediah Smith or somebody who talked, or maybe it was Edward Belcher who talked about the um, furs being sold to those ships at $3 a pop. Um, that is furs that have been taken, you know, traded for, um, with Indian trappers 
um, collected by people like John Sutter or Mission San Jose, um, and then sold for $3 to these ships. So what John Sutter or Mission San Jose are, are collecting is $3 a skin. Um, what Indians are collecting is not $3 a skin, right? Um, so this, again, is like when I talked about, like, I'm not trying to deny that, like, there weren't bad elements of this. Um, this is one area where it's like, okay, so Indians are making the best out of the situation, and they're, like, snagging up all the economic opportunity they possibly can. Um, but at the end of the day, um, white settlers are profiting off of this a lot more, or the missions are profiting off of this a lot more. Um, I, I always imagine it as, like, Indians are at the bottom of the economic food chain in this trade, always. So they're never getting the full value of what they're producing. But, I mean, in some cases... In colonial California, would $3 in cash money have been as significant to Indian traders as five pounds of beads? Maybe not. So maybe they were come out, coming out ahead. But just in terms of like dollar value of things, yeah. I mean, the missions and Sutter and other, um, other buyers of Indian furs are definitely um, making more money just in terms of like dollar value. Um, were there any groups of Indians that realized that they were kind of getting gypped and not really getting the full value of the furs and kind of tried to, like, take it into their own hands at all? Or was it purely just profit for white settlers? Yeah, so um, I didn't have too much time to get into this. But, um, yeah, so there's, um, like, a whole journal that Sutter keeps that's, like, full of his um, his frustrations about being ripped off by, uh, by Indian trappers. So he's like, look, I've extended these guys' credit. Um, they're all in debt to me, um, like potentially hundreds of dollars. Um, I am letting them borrow my traps. I'm letting them borrow my canoes. They're going out and they're trapping and they're in debt to me. They're supposed to be bringing back these furs to me to pay off these debts. Um, but everywhere I go, they're selling them to this guy down the street and this other guy up the road and that guy down the river. In one case, they're even, um, they even appear to be selling to a uh, chief of a local Indian village. So like, he's even getting ripped off and like beaten at his own game by like this Indian chief who's just like, yeah, I'll take your furs. I can sell those. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a constant, it's a constant problem for Sutter. And what that tells me is that, um, Indians are like, this guy doesn't pay very well. Like we could totally be getting paid better. Um, if we just go down the road, right? Because um, you can imagine the good barter position that they would be in. They'd be like, pss, pss, Bob Smith down the way. Like, Sutter's going to give me five pounds of beads, but I'll bring these first to you if you'll give me six, right? And then, you know, Bob Smith down the street's like, oh, so checks out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is um, something that I think is, like, often underappreciated uh, about uh, Indian, the Native American history in North America is that, um, there's a popular stereotype that, that Indians were sort of like simple and living off of the land and like only taking what they needed. Dude, these people could drive a bargain, right? Um, and, and drive a hard bargain and like they could ruin somebody, right? I mean, Sutter, I mean, this isn't the only reason that Sutter was always on the edge of ruin, but certainly not being able to get the furs in payment for the goods that he had extended on credit um, went a long way towards some of his economic misery that ended with the collapse of New Helvetia in 1851. Right. So if I had like all the time in the world to keep you guys hostage here uh, and continue talking about this, yeah, I could tell you a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering when uh, the furs of the beavers and the otters ran out, what would happen to both the fur traders and the native Indians' economies? Because the Indians are depending on these furs for the beads and the traders are depending on them for currency. So what would happen when they ran, ultimately ran out of the furs? Um, so for a group like the Hudson's Bay Company, for example, right, that British fur trade company that sends those brigades down into California, um, it, it becomes a serious problem. Um, 
they eventually stop sending brigades because they're not getting enough furs um, for their efforts. Like you, you have to like put together all these guys, and you have to pay them, and you have to send food and weapons and all this stuff and, and goods to trade with the Indians. And if the Indians can't trap enough and bring enough furs in, then it's no longer profitable for the Hudson's Bay Company to be engaged in this. Um, and so ultimately, like the, the Hudson's Bay Company kind of pulls back from that trade. But Indians have like tons of irons in the fire, right? Like there's there's no village that's like trapping is all we do. They're like we trap, we steal livestock, we fish. Like we like we have like all kinds of side hustles going on, right? Um, so it, it actually ends up in some ways being um, more of a problem for the Hudson's Bay Company or John Sutter. Um, Sutter himself is in a ton of debt, uh, and he has. Contracted with um, like various suppliers of goods, like yes, I will pay you back, but I promise I will only pay you back in beaver skins, or I will only pay you back in bushels of wheat. So Sutter is in a worse predicament in some ways because he, um, if the beaver skins don't come in, he's in violation of his contract, right? Um, whereas Indians are like, oh, the beaver didn't work out, we can steal some livestock, right? Um, and sometimes Sutter buys the stolen livestock, sometimes they steal the livestock from Sutter. It's just like a constant, you know. Somebody's always working some kind of angle. Now that doesn't that doesn't mean that um, that things don't get tough, especially as more and more American settlers start to arrive in California, um, especially after the gold rush, because what that starts to do is threaten the like food level subsistence. Right? If you can't go out and gather acorns without being assaulted by miners, if you can't fish the streams because miners are um, dumping so much gravel and sand into the streams by mining that it completely destroys the salmon run, then you're in trouble, a level of trouble that fur trapping can't fix. Then you, you don't eat. Um, and so there are other ways that it becomes tough um, for Indians, but the commodity stuff, the, the beaver, the, the livestock, any one of those things is not always completely um, the only source of economic survival. Oh, we got a contest here. Go to Jordan first. Okay. Um, throughout history, there's been plenty of times of trading with Indians. How come you focused on this region and this time period of trading? Oh, my gosh. I have the worst answer for this question. Um, so do you remember when we talked about how historians always study, like, who they are, where they're from? Mm -hmm. Right? So this is where I'm from. If I could have figured out a way to research and write about things that happened in the backyard of my childhood home 100 years ago, that's what I would have done. But this is as close as I could get. Um, to like literally studying where I come from. Um, so yeah, um, my, my PhD advisor, um, as I was bouncing dissertation topics off of him, said, well, all this history of the Cherokee Nation sounds great, but you have to stop and ask yourself, um, do you really want to spend years of your life in Oklahoma doing this research? And so I stopped and I thought, <laughs> and he said, well, where, where do you want to go? Because, you, you know, you need to be willing to go to the place that you want to do your research. And I said, well, I always want to go to California. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I came upon this topic. And then it got closer and closer and closer to where I'm from. Um, so that's a terrible answer, right? Okay. Thank you. Michael? Another fur skin question, uh, the beaver fur. So did the value of beaver fur from the West Coast make any impact on, let's say, like the Southeast region on, like, deerskin value? Um, so by this, by this point in time, um, by the time that California becomes uh, wrapped up in the, the fur trade, this is like the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, the, the Southwest deerskin trade is over. Um, I mean, it's not completely over. People still hunt deer. You know, like, that's still an item that you can trade for. But that huge um, international 
deer skin trade that like powers entire colonies is pretty much over. Yeah. I know, and you would never imagine that it was because deer were so partly because deer were so drastically overhunted because they're such a nuisance in the southeast today, right? Um, messing up your garden, hitting your car. <laughs> that it? All right. Well, hey, thanks very much um, for being here this evening, and uh, I hope you all have a wonderful weekend.